Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we look at two strikingly different approaches to addressing gaps in our understanding of American art history, efforts that work to more fully include African-American artists in our national narrative. My first guest will be Souls Grown Deep Foundation President Maxwell Anderson. Souls Grown Deep works to document, preserve, and promote the work of artists from the African-American South and to more fully include their cultural traditions within American art. In 2014, Souls Grown Deep began a program to transfer the majority of the over a thousand works in its collection, artworks by artists such as Ronald Lockett, Thornton Dial, Mary T. Smith, Joe Minter, and the quilt makers of the G's Bend community in Alabama, to American and international art museums. So far, Souls Grown Deep's efforts have led to the acquisition of hundreds of works by museums such as the Metropolitan, the High Museum of Art, the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art, and plenty more. Many of those museums have organized exhibitions of those acquisitions, and right now, the DeYoung Museum in San Francisco has included many Souls Grown Deep sourced works in a new ongoing installation from its modern and contemporary collection. My second guest will be Kelly Jones, an art history professor at Columbia University who's working with the Getty Research Institute on its new African-American art history initiative. But first, Max Anderson, after the break. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Alan Ruppersberg, Intellectual Property, 1968-2018. to This major retrospective offers a chance to experience the pioneering artist's work in unprecedented breadth and depth. Ruppersberg's first comprehensive U.S. survey in over 30 years, Intellectual Property includes more than 120 works made over the past 50 years, from early assemblage sculptures and photo works combining text and image to drawings and collages. Recent immersive installations are shown alongside Ruppersburg's groundbreaking environments, Al's Cafe and Al's Grand Hotel, participatory projects that help put L.A. on the map as a center for conceptual art. On view February 10th through May 12th at The Hammer. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Tudors to Windsors, British Royal Portraits from Holbein to Warhol. Organized in partnership with the National Portrait Gallery London, this sweeping survey of some 150 paintings, sculptures, and photographs spans four dynasties and 500 years of British royal portraiture, exploring a changing nation through artists' depictions of monarchy. On view October 7th through January 27th, only in Houston. Visit mfah.org royals for more. And we're back. Max Anderson, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Who was William S. Arnett, and how did he end up collecting? Well, Bill Arnett is still alive and lives in Atlanta, as he has for decades, and was a collector of various forms of art, Asian art, African art, lived abroad for a while, moved back home to Columbus, Georgia. And on a road trip through the South, really stumbled upon some of the artists that he would later come to collect in depth. And did he build the entire collection that now makes up what's in Souls Grown Deep's care himself, or did his sons and his children help too? He really did. His sons, Matt and Paul in particular, were helpful in support of his efforts. But his collection grew by leaps and bounds as he began to get to know artists in different communities in Alabama and Mississippi and, and elsewhere in the South. And as he acquired work, 
he began to accumulate it, I guess one would say. But the foundation's collections are finite and drawn from what he described as the very best of what he'd collected. And our collection was founded in 2010, born of every object that was illustrated in the catalogs that had been produced to date and in the exhibitions that had been shown to date. So let's talk a little bit about how that work came to enter the institutional world. When it comes to art holding foundations, which are more commonly, but you know, certainly not always, single artist foundations, I think one of the first questions foundation leadership has to consider is the balance of monetizing the work in the foundation's holdings, such as via the commercial art market, even if that means holding, holding work for many decades, and whether to make gifts of work to relevant art museums. How did the foundation begin to approach that question? Was it a strategic planning process or was it just obvious? It wasn't obvious. Bill had the intention all along to see these works end up in museum collections. He recognized that that was the path towards the acceptance of these artists' careers and contributions. But there wasn't a strategy for it particularly. And the tactics were exhibitions. He did these remarkable shows that had such an impact on the U.S. museum scene, including the Quilts of G's Bend exhibition, which was shown at the Whitney in 2002, having been organized by the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston by Peter Marzio. And so those exhibitions and their accompanying catalogs were a tactical approach. In 2016, when I was made president of the foundation, I proposed to our board that we change course and move away from planning and presenting exhibitions to transferring the collections and do so the way some other artists endowed foundations had done, most notably the Rauschenberg Foundation, by a methodology of gift purchase so that museums would have a 50% bargain sale offering and we would generate sufficient revenue to operate the foundation. So that's been the model in the last two and a half years. So just to give people some numerical context dollar-wise, I think people expect, probably more than they should, foundations such as Souls Grown Deep to be wealthy or to have enormous endowments. The Warhol Foundation, for example, has assets of about $300 million. Souls Grown Deep has assets of under $300,000, <laughs> a factor of 1000 <laughs> In, in its last reported or its last availably reported tax year, Souls Grown Deep's storage costs alone, for example, were, were somewhere between 40 and I think closer to 40 than $50,000. What does the gift purchase model allow? What does it do for you? I mean, obviously, you know, the, the foundation's mis mission is focused around placing art in collections, but what does the gift purchase agreement do for you that would be difficult to do otherwise? Two things. One is it opens the door for museums that look at diversifying their collections and see that a lot of African-American artists who have achieved market success are beyond their reach. And so we become an option for them to consider with acquisitions of consequence that will indeed contribute to that mandate. And from our side, the sales of work to museums. We've now completed 12 museum acquisitions and each of the last two years we've generated about a million dollars in revenue from those sales so that they're supporting the needs of the foundation for conservation and storage and our work in advocacy, which includes 
getting the artists and their heirs and assigns signed up with the artist rights society and it includes support of the artist resale royalty act that's coming before the new congress in january again and other efforts to preserve examples of artist environments in the south and the like so we're clicking along and we don't know if the appetites of museums will remain as high as they are but the gift purchase model certainly generates enough revenue for us both to operate and to begin to extend in our strategic planning purposes grants to to entities and organizations and causes in the african-american south how did you decide, or, 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 or did you, maybe it was decided for you by outside forces, which art museums to target for, for gift purchase agreements, for collection placement? I drew up a list in, in June of 2016 when I started to show the board of a cascading group of museums, starting with encyclopedic museums that struck me would be the hardest nuts to crack in that they tend to have fewer resources for modern and contemporary art. They have so many other demands on their acquisition funds. And a recognition that museums look at each other. And if a major institution requires work, then other major institutions might be interested. And I learned this from 20 some years ago, starting the Art Museum Image Consortium when we were building a digital library of images for museums. and it was a game of telephone. If we could get the Philadelphia Museum of Arts Impressionist Collection, then we could get the Boston Museum to say, hey, we should be on this too. So we were looking at the larger museums that would be prone to participate with us if they were the first in. If we had started with a larger spectrum of museums, my concern was a director or curators might say, why weren't we approached? We're not interested. So I understand that. And we approached it that way. And now that we've worked with a large number of encyclopedic museums, we're beginning to turn to other institutions that are both modern and contemporary, historically black college and university museums, and others that are surprises like the Morgan Library, which came out of the blue. You mentioned earlier that most, if not all, of this is work that was created in the South. And it sure looks from the geography of institutions to which you've sent work that a priority or at least an interest has been to distribute work nationally, San Francisco to New York. Was that a dedicated conversation or did that just happen organically? It was a dedicated conversation. The concern I'd had when I was assembling a show on Thornton Dial in 2009 for the Indianapolis Museum of Art was I couldn't get venues outside of the South. And the recognition of artists in the collection outside of the traditional museum complement in the South that's paid attention to its own heritage was a top priority for the Soulscrown Deep Foundation. So we, to some degree, emphasized the East Coast, West Coast ahead of the South. We're now happily back in the South Spelman College Museum of Fine Art recently made an acquisition. We're in discussions with other historically black college university museums and others in the South. So we're spreading our net more widely again. I would be really surprised if a museum such as the Fine Arts Museums in San Francisco had a contemporary curator staff that was as fluid in Ronald Lockett as it is in, you know, Cecily Brown. How much education have you had to do as a foundation in talking with institutions? How much did they know at the outset of engagement and conversations? It varies greatly, of course. Timothy Brigard 
is the curator in the De Young at Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, with whom we worked. And Tim is among the most knowledgeable people about this field and had dedicated a lot of time, in fact, studying our collection and getting to know it. So it was an exceptional circumstance where he knew as well as, as our team did what his aspirations would likely have to be to succeed in bringing a collection forward of 62 works that were acquired by the de Young and placed on prominent display not long thereafter. Terrific show. I mean, that was a really, that was the best probably installation I've seen yet. Yeah. Thank you. Well, we were thrilled and it was a great honor to be having them as the first encyclopedic museum after the Metropolitan that acquired significant work because I was looking at American museums, the great American collections, including Philadelphia, the de Young, the Met, uh, the National Gallery. These are the ones that obviously are ascendant in thinking about American art history. But I think your point is right. In a lot of other museums, there are curators who are very fluid in the language and realm of contemporary art that's been anointed by the art market and ones where they have an awareness of emerging artists whose work in studios hasn't yet hit the market and variety of other sources. But in this case, unless they'd seen an exhibition of work organized 20, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, they might not have had a background. So I wouldn't describe it so much as education as collaborative learning. How's that for a description? So some museums prioritize study and research, some a lot less so, especially in their contemporary departments. Once you're engaged with an institution, a collecting institution, what can a foundation such as yours do to try to ensure that institutions research new work, not just to understand it, but not just to understand that specific work, but to better broaden existing narratives around contemporary art to include typically excluded artists? Yeah, well, that's part of what our extraordinary director of collections, Scott Browning, has been at work on is in dialogue with museums, helping them see a couple of things. One, the research archive that we've moved over to the University of North Carolina library. We've transferred 13,000 objects so far into their archive. We have another about 10,000 to go in terms of video and recordings and photographs and ephemera and correspondence. And giving the background, both the finding aids to UNC's library, to these curators and museums to understand the basis on which these artists' reputations should rest, but also thinking more broadly about the, the premises of what collecting art by these artists demands. These are not typically individuals who were in the market or had representation or a biographical record that was known or even a photograph. And so much of what we've had to do is to go prospecting for that or create that information from scratch, knocking on doors and getting suspicious looks <laughs> and prying loose the stories and narratives about family history and about authorship and intellectual property rights. And having all of that as a background to help curators situate this work is as much rediscovering American history as it is rediscovering American art. Still, you know, some foundations can make large, you know, high six and even seven figure grants to institutions to make sure art that matters to them, art they've gifted is is studied actively on a routine basis and not just left alone. And, you know, you don't have that mechanism and, and won't going forward. Are there ways other than, than pointing people to to UNC that you've thought about or that you continue to think about that will make study more possible, including for people outside 
the now collecting institutions? As we keep moving ahead and we hope building the resources that the foundation would like to have for grant making, we absolutely foresee supporting research and supporting both museum and university research on the artists represented in the collection. And that starts as early as having a new internship program for students that we've supported now at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, New Orleans Museum of Art, New Orleans Museum of Art, and the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So we start at the entry level of scholarship and then moving forward, we anticipate providing that. But I think we also have a philosophical approach to what we're doing, which is very laissez-faire. We don't have terms and conditions when museums make acquisitions. We don't require them to publish it. We don't require an exhibition. We don't require a strategy around the permanent collection. Partly because I lived through 30 years of being a museum director and loathing having strings attached to acquisitions. So what we foresee is more an evolutionary approach where these museums will start to do exhibitions with each other. They will look to borrow works from each other to fill in gaps. And that in itself is an organic way of seeing scholarship emerge rather than something that we would attempt to obligate. What about non-museum research and study? Is there a mechanism that either within the foundation or that you envision in the future that will make it more possible for PhD students, for example, to make work from the collection or related to the artists in the collection possible as dissertation subjects, for example? We would love to see that level of graduate research. I think, as you started to say, our resources are very limited. Our collection is in a TSA-bonded art storage facility in Atlanta, and we, to have access to it, we ourselves have to have art handlers pry it loose from shelving and out of crates. So it's not you know, lavishly displayed somewhere where a scholar could come and consult it. It requires an appointment. So that type of hands-on research is challenged as a function of our storage cost needs. But I think down the road, as we're seeing in general around scholarship, the approach that emerging scholars have in the digital space is so different from what was the case before. And as these objects begin to make their way into collections, they'll be available for primary study. For the time, I think that's how it has to work. Souls Grown Deep has helped enable, I think, two monographic shows in the last 12 years, Thornton Dial and Ronald Lockett. Monographic shows are kind of like biography to a lot of people in the field. Some art historians and curators think they artificially focus on an individual when a whole has yet to be fully understood. Reasonable people, including those of us who sort of just wrote biographies, can, can disagree about that, of course. Why and how did you all decide that doing those monographic shows were appropriate and useful, or participating in those monographic shows were appropriate and useful? Well, Bernie Herman, the professor at the University of North Carolina, who spearheaded the Ron Lockett project has been a very long advocate of this work and understood Lockett's career better than most and saw it as a, a life cut short and yet someone who was successful as a dial, a Thornton dial intimate, someone who understood how to wrestle found materials into something extraordinary and provide some insight for a viewer into the, the hard scrabble life of Alabama and the Black Belt. And as people, Lockett and Dial were fascinating people. They had their views of the world were shaped under the similar circumstances, although Dial was obviously much older. 
But I think giving a voice to a person who made this work as opposed to constantly showing a collective of artists is essential. After all, it's so easy to define these artists by terms that we abjure, like self-taught, vernacular, outsider. We don't use that language. And one good way of dispelling it is to make these people into real people in the context of an exhibition or an, a publication. And to do otherwise, you risk having it agglomerated as an event or a movement that is faceless and ultimately can be put in a context that's separate and apart from human agency. So in, in, in the years to come, you know, I know that, that y'all just did a, new, a recently new strategic plan. Y'all still have art that you hope to distribute to partner institutions. What else comes next? Well, just to be clear, we've we've worked on now 12 acquisitions in museums in nine states. And I looked this up before we had our conversation. We've parted with 308 works by 85 artists, 68% of them women. But that leaves us with 1,100 more works in the process. So we're really at the beginning stages. And there are dozens of museums in our sites. So I can't slow down at the time for the time being in any way around the consideration of where best to situate these. And we're normally in discussion with multiple museums in one time. So it's a bit of three-dimensional chess for Scott and myself in particular to sort out where objects would find their best home and how to make sure we're distributing the collection in ways that are mutually advantageous. So that's going to occupy most of my energy and Scott Browning's uh, along with the board in the coming years. We are simultaneously, though, looking to see grant making become a kind of springboard for the generosity of others in, in Wilcox County, Alabama, where the G's Bend community is still. It's, it's one of the two poorest counties in America. So we're working on a planning process to find ways of supporting the community directly. And we're going to be making a grant shortly to support a, an environment by the Reverend Herman Dennis in, in Vicksburg, Mississippi. It was just written up as a, a wonderful thing. It's a, in the Mississippi Delta, he did a grocery store that he turned into a kind of castle, a remarkable assemblage. So those are the sorts of grants we hope to be making in the coming years. And together, those two premises are the strategic plan is to see the transition of this work into public collections and to see the betterment of living conditions for artists and their heirs in the African-American South. Is partnerships with other foundations, particularly pecuniarily wealthier foundations, something that, that y'all consider? Sure. We're, we'd very much like to do that. And we're, we've begun some very initial dialogues. I attended the Artists Endowed Foundation initiative recently that the Aspen Institute runs and had an opportunity to talk with some other foundation leaders. As you say, we're the the most we're the newbies in this in this association of foundations because we're under resourced and we represent 160 artists rather than just one. So we're anomalous in so many ways, but we foresee the possibility of collaborating with foundations with universities and and downstream potentially with investors in the communities that might be developers that might be people who are interested in seeing the improvement of people's lives in the south. Max Anderson, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be with you.
On February 28th at the Getty Center, here's Spelman College President Mary Schmidt Campbell discuss her biography of the late Romare Bearden, a renowned 20th century African-American artist whose work explores universal themes through the celebration of African-American culture. A book signing follows this free talk. Learn more at getty.edu 360. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina presents Pop America, 1965-1975, the first exhibition to present a hemispheric vision of pop art. Visitors who know and love pop art for its engaging imagery will rediscover pop as a verb, a strategy for communicating powerful content throughout the Americas. The exhibition shows how Latin American and Latino and Latina artists made a significant contribution to this artistic period. Pop America features nearly 100 works by a network of Latino and Latina and Latin American pop artists connecting Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Cuba, Mexico, Peru, Puerto Rico, and the United States. Pop America is the culmination of groundbreaking research by guest curator and Duke professor Esther Gabara. The first ever Sotheby's Prize was awarded to Pop America last year. On view February 21st through July 21st at the Nasher Museum. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. My next guest is Kelly Jones, an art history professor at Columbia University and the new senior consultant to the Getty Research Institute's just as new African-American Art History Initiative. Among other components, the Getty's new program will acquire and make available artist archives, establish a dedicated curatorship in African-American art history, make available annual research fellowships, and conduct oral histories of key figures across the field. When the Getty announced the program, the GRI also announced it was acquiring the archive of Betty Saar, one of the most influential artists of the post-war period. Kelly Jones, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Always great to be here, Tyler. When you begin or help begin a multi-million dollar program, something that large, to create a center for the study of African-American art history, where do you start? And by that I mean... Do you do a formal assessment of the field? Do you bring half a dozen people together and discuss professional experiences and absences and build priorities that way? How do you want to systematically address what needs to be done? We started doing that with specific standard time in 2011 in terms of me working and doing, curating the Now Dig This Art in Black Los Angeles 1960 to 1980 exhibition for the Getty, and I think at that time, that exhibition was one of maybe three or four out of the 60-plus projects they had. Although, and I say focus very specifically, because there were a wide range of artists in the show, but the focus was really on what African-American artists had created culturally in Los Angeles in that time, looking at that, looking at these communities, and looking at colleagues and friends and how they had created this effort in Los Angeles. And so the kind of excitement about that project, and it was one of the popular projects of that version of Pacific Standard Time, pointed up the kind of gaps. It began to point up. At that point, I think the Getty itself started to begin to reassess because, again, it was one of only three or four projects that really put a focus on African-American artists. So th- I believe the assessment began then. It began when we started actually working on the project in 2008. And so for the Getty, but I do believe the assessment had been going on since then. 
for my part as an art historian, and I will step in and speak for many of my colleagues, part of what we do as art historians who have a focus on African diaspora or African-American work in this case is about reassessing and, and telling new stories about American art history in general. Are there specific challenges or issues unique to or primary to the field of African-American art history compared to other American art histories, things like a lack of oral histories or a lack of archival resources or archival focus? There is a lack of probably all of those things compared to the kind of larger history of American art. But I do think it is growing. Something that you can point to the most in terms of, would be in terms of kind of general knowledge about these artists in the larger art history. So in the survey texts, do you just have Romare Bearden? Uh, do, who do you just have? Do you have just Basquiat? And you think of all the hundreds of artists that are out there. So are African-American or African diaspora artists only represented if you're looking at American art or even general art history? And so in that way, we can say, yes, these people are underrepresented in the larger histories, and that fuels in some ways they're not thought of as important enough to collect oral histories or to do oral histories for many, many um, institutions. So as you engage with and work with the Getty on, on the new initiative, what are the gaps as you see them within the field that you hope the project addresses going forward? I think what most excites me about this initiative is that it doesn't just address one thing. There is not something that's the primary thing we need to address. It works on multiple levels. The way it works in that way is to bring in a curator of these collections, which is somebody dedicated to uh, acquiring African-American collections, to interpreting African-American collections. So it's not just, we're going to bring in these collections and they're going to sit there, and how are we going to get the word out? We're inviting you in. There's also collaborations. There's the goal of having collaborations with historically black colleges and universities such as Spelman. And so we have Andrea Barnwell Brownlee on the advisory committee to address some of that, collaborating with places like California African American Museum, like Art in Practice, like the Schomburg Center, and potentially other sites. So this is, for me, what makes the Getty so exciting. There are other institutions that are interested in acquiring archives, but you can't just stop there. <laughs> you, you've got to stimulate the field in a number of different ways, and through you know, hiring people to interpret, bringing in people who are finishing their doctoral dissertations, or people who are starting them and are going to work on these collections, postdocs, scholars, so the Getty really is set up to support all of that. And so this is why I am so, so excited about this initiative and why I signed on to it. One, one thing I always note when the GRI is the subject is there, there's really no one in American art history better at putting uh, archival material online and doing so quickly than the GRI. So among, to me anyway, the benefits of, of 
material going there is the grad students and and early career resource, researchers who don't have the resources to travel can still access material, certainly on paper, in a, in a, in a way they might not be able to otherwise. You mentioned HBCUs. Spelman's a great example. Not only is does it have an important museum, but its president is an art historian, Mary Schmidt Campbell, whose biography of Romare Bearden came out came out late last year. You know, the Getty is not a place that has historically partnered with HBCUs. How will that look? Might that look going forward? I think it's something that is in process, but certainly, you know, Dr. Campbell will be speaking about her book there this month. I don't remember if it's already happened, but she will be there. And I'm sure there will be greater conversations. You may know that Spellman recently received grants to expand its curatorial training and art historical training. So I'm sure there will be, you know, greater kind of interface there as well. So I think it could take many forms. And we're hoping that it does so indeed, again, in terms of internships, students coming from these places and having the opportunities to participate with these new archives as well. So I do believe that they're, again, it's a multi-level type of collaboration that's going to start with Spelman, but I don't know if we need to end there. There's other opportunities at other schools that we might think of, for instance, right now, Center for Advanced Study in Visual Art, COSVA in Washington, D.C., is collaborating with Howard. So there may be an opportunity to do something like that as well by partnering with COSVA. So, you know, I think we're going to start with Spellman, but I don't think it ends there. And, of course, two HBCUs have long art world histories, Lincoln University in Philadelphia with the Barnes partnership, I guess you could call it, that hasn't always gone smoothly. And Fisk in Nashville, which has had its broader administrative challenges and now has a certain relationship, shall we say, with Crystal Bridges and, of course, is, is home to Aaron Douglas's great mural series, which has attracted a lot of outside work in, in recent years. You mentioned oral histories. I remember when I first read your book, South of Pico, that when I went through the bibliography, I was struck by how how heavily you'd leaned on on oral histories. So I know... Commissioning new oral histories is part of the GRI's focus. Could you give us kind of a state of the field of African-American art history, oral history, and and kind of what hasn't been done in that area? Well, one of the, you know, the kind of great things for me in writing South of Pico was finding all those oral histories at UCLA. At the time I found them, they were not online. Now they are, as you said. Now this becomes a greater resource for all sorts of people. So I think in creating new oral histories and starting with the fact that they're going to be online and accessible is going to, again, stimulate the field. You know, get people's stories from their point of view, especially where there's a dearth of literature. When I did South of Pico, uh, you know, hats off to all the wonderful curators, Lizetta Laval Collins included, that had done shows on these artists like John Otterbridge, like Noah Purifoy. But beyond that, just in terms of, terms of page count, you know, these oral histories are 700 pages. The catalogs, you're lucky if they're 100. So potentially, there was a lot more information in the oral history. 
that was not covered in the catalog. So given, you know, if you're facing the kind of dearth of written texts or articles on these artists, besides reviews, the oral history actually has perhaps the most information you're going to find. Now, of course, being a researcher, you know you're going to have to check that against you know, this is an artist's narration of their life. You know that. And you check it against other oral histories. You check it against other catalogs by more well-known artists. But I think it's a great place to start, I would say, in that generation that, you know, nobody else had asked them about their story. And, and actually, with the oral histories at the Getty, we are starting, of course, with older artists. Now, some of them have already had substantial oral histories. You probably saw Betty Saar being the first uh, archive we're going to acquire, and having seen some of that now recently, she's had some. It's it, you, You're going to be amazed when you see this thing. It is so incredible. Samela Lewis has, has two oral histories. So some people have several already, but then, you know, some people, why not have another one? You know, are the questions going to change now? with some of these artists, but then some artists haven't had them at all. So, you know, thinking about people like William T. Williams, for instance, or Richard Mayhew, they have very thin ones. You know, they're not the 700-page UCLA versions. We're partnering with University of California at Berkeley to do very specific, formal, again, longer types of oral histories, that UCLA represents as well. You know, I, I notice we've mentioned a bunch of California-based artists and institutions. Is the Getty's initiative also national in focus? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, they're in California. The Betty Saar archive is obviously a huge one. She's in her 90s. You know, let's get that one. But absolutely national. And that's what it, that's what's also exciting Clearly, a collaboration with Spellman takes it to Atlanta, takes us to the South, where I think there will be a lot of great things to look at and people to talk to. But also, even though Melvin Edwards has been interviewed plenty of times, I don't know if he's really had a proper oral history. In other words, not on the same level as uh, the ones at UCLA, like Purfoy and Outta Bridge or Samella Lewis. So... There's even opportunities there. So I think there's a lot of opportunities uh, to think nationally. MacArthur Binion is another one. He's slightly younger, but somebody who's now getting a lot of visibility out in the art scene. Making He's been making those abstract paintings for many years. Start there also with a kind of more substantial oral history. Yeah, and there are also lots of opportunities to talk with non-artists who have been around and important to African-American art history, be it uh, curators or historians or dealers, places where in in kind of the more white-focused art world, there are often quite extensive oral histories. Uh, the papers of, of dealers and galleries, for example, um, the Getty has, has, has a number of them. It's, it's uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot. You know, as a discipline, art history can be can often be rigidly siloed and can exclude histories, you know, can exclude from its considerations histories that aren't specifically art. 
And within much African-American art history, broader social histories are especially important because for so many African-American artists, especially in the 20th century, well, and 21st century, I'm trying to exclude the 19th, (laughs) subjects and histories and events outside art informed so much work. I mean, I mean, Richard Diebenkorn wasn't thinking about Watts, right? Richard Diebenkorn wasn't thinking about, you know, farm workers. So as you work on on building out the field and considering what a a fuller, broader, more inclusive African-American art history field should look like, do you think about how to account for that or to include within the project and what it funds and enables and addresses a different kind of breadth? I think the artists will drive that and also the dealers, you know, thinking about somebody like Linda Good Bryant, who were obviously very excited about trying to include the founder of the Just Above Midtown Gallery, Ponyard's Like, David Hammonds, and really had an independent voice on 57th Street in New York in the 70s. I believe she's the first African-American to have a gallery on that prestigious street in New York that was the street of, of art galleries. I think the different experiences that these people have in the art world will lead us down different paths. And it's not that, you know, you're talking about Diebenkorn or David Park or even a Joan Mitchell or anybody is bad. It's just different. And we should include all of these voices because art is about all of these experiences of uh, people living on the planet and wanting to create beauty or comment on their world or comment on what's in their head, you know. And I think we should really explore all of those avenues of what makes up art. There's just not one thing that makes up art, even in a U.S. context. Kelly Jones, thanks so much. Great. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.